Hey, welcome to the Living the Dream podcast. This is your host, Timmy Douglas, and the goal of this podcast is to create a community that inspires action, accountability, celebrates progress, and helps people make the right connections to take that next step towards their dreams and goals. If you're looking for any one-on-one coaching to pinpoint your purpose and start taking steps in that direction, make sure to contact me on my website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, or on social media. On that note, let's get into the show. All right, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Living the Dream podcast. Today on the show, we have Dave Combs, who is a songwriter, photographer, entrepreneur, and author with four decades of experience writing over 120 songs and creating 14 albums of soothing, relaxing, instrumental piano music. Dave, how you doing? I am doing great, and I think that uh, the title of your podcast, I think, kind of summarizes my last uh, 40 years of my life with my music. So I've been I've been living the dream and continued living the dream. So it, this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. No, that's excellent. Let's go ahead and jump right in. You can tell us a little bit about what you do for fun, but also tell us about what your day to day has looked like for the past 40 years that constitutes living the dream. Well, uh, things I do for fun, you know, I am, my wife says I make her head spin sometimes with all the stuff that I like to do. I'm, I love to play table tennis. I've got trophies, a whole wall full of trophies that I've won playing table tennis over the years. I I love to play pool. I love uh, bicycle riding. I loved hiking when I can. And uh, it's just, my interests have always been very active with any kind of sports and also with outdoors. I love the outdoors. I was born and raised in the mountains of East Tennessee, up near Johnson City, uh, the other side of the mountain from Asheville, North Carolina, in the hills of Tennessee. And I lived about a mile from the Appalachian Trail. So I, when I would go, I could go out my front porch, walk down the highway, and about one mile, I'm on the Appalachian Trail. So I loved hiking in the mountains and the Nolichucky River runs through the valley that I was raised in there. So outdoors is nature is always a big uh, thrill. I love going to the mountains. In fact, we're going to Blowing Rock tomorrow to uh, and I love riding on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Uh, My wife and I used to be on the board of trustees of the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation. So outdoors and nature and all that and also music. Uh, I grew up in a family that loved music. My mother and father both played the piano, and my grandmother Combs, uh, she was born in 1894, back before electricity was anywhere, and she used to play the old pump organ. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. It's an organ that you play, but you, you get the air moving through it by pumping the bellows with your feet. You pump, they call it a pump organ. You, you literally pump the air with your feet, and then you can play the organ as the air goes through the reeds and so forth. But she would just, she'd play that old pump organ at church and sing solos and she also loved this instrument that i have right here in my hands this is hers and she gave, gave it to me when she passed away it's an auto harp it's a stringed instrument that basically it's a kind of a, a mountain instrument that mother maybell carter which was johnny car johnny cash's mother-in-law made made famous but it's a stringed instrument and you just strum it hold down a key So every time, every time I'd go see Granny Combs, she'd hand me her auto harp and say, David, would you please tune up my auto harp for me? 
and I would, and then I'd hand it back to her, and she would just tear loose on it and sing all those favorite old hymns that, that she loved to sing, you know, Amazing Grace or, you know, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, all those good, good old songs. So I grew up around music since I was born. I guess it's in my bones. And uh, I've, I also, I love science and technology. I've always been good in math and physics, and my, my major in college was mathematics and minored in physics, and I ended up as a IT computer programmer kind of person as my first job straight out of college. And uh, so I've stayed with technology. My, my professional career from college till I retired from AT&T in 1992, after 22 and a half years, was in all in technology. From everything with computers and and all through that process was the advent of you know the email, the advent of the internet, the all those technologies that we just take for granted today. I saw those come to life and come into being in my career. So that was my professional career. But all during that whole time, I had this underpinning and love of music. Um, I, I just love to sing. I love to play music. I love to play the piano or play. I, I don't play the guitar very well, but I, I love to, at least I learned the chords, you know, C, F, and G chords on the, on the guitar. And, and I, my, a lot of my friends were excellent musicians. So we would go to what we would call a jam session on Friday night. That's where you bring your instrument and you just meet at somebody's house and you just sit there and you make music. And so those jam sessions is where I picked up a lot of the, the music that where you just basically play by ear. You know, you're not reading music off of the sheet music. You're just making music together. And uh, so that was a big part of my growing up. And so when I was finally 33, almost 33 and a half years old, I finally wrote my first song. Now, tell, you can ask me, why did it take me 33 and a half years with all that exposure to music and music lessons and wanted a love of music, why did it take me that long to write a song? Well, Timmy, I didn't even sit down to really write a song. I sat down at my piano one night when I came home from work just to relax. Now, a lot of people do a lot of things to relax. I know we, you and your guests have talked a lot about meditation and different techniques, and even some of them have even said, suggested music is a way of getting your mind centered and calmed and relaxing. Well, that's, that was me. I would sit down at my piano after work in the evenings and sit and, and just relax and play something, either something I had heard on the radio or play sheet music or just doodle on the keyboard. This one night in January of 1981, I sat down and I just simply started playing this song. It was not something I intended to sit down and try to write. I just played it. And it, every time I played a piece of it, I knew what the next part was supposed to be as if I'd heard it a million times, although I'd never heard it. Mm. And so I finished this whole song. It was a, a verse and a chorus and I played it and I kept playing it and I loved it. But I didn't know, I didn't really think of it as writing a song. I just loved playing it. Well, a couple of days later, my wife, Linda, came home from her job and she said, Dave, what is the name of this song that I've had stuck in my head all day long? You know, you get an earworm in there and you just you just hum it over and over and over again. And I, she, I said, well, hum it for me. And she, she said, and she did a little bit. And I said, well, it doesn't have a name. And she says, what do you mean it doesn't have a name? You play it on the piano all the time. I love the way you play it. 
I said, well, I guess it's just something I made up. Well, Linda got all excited and she says, wow, that is incredible. Have you written it down? You know, I said, well, no, I've, I've got it up here in my mind. It's not going to go anywhere. And she said, oh, no, something might happen to you. And I'd never be able to remember that song. So she said, you've got to write it down. I said, okay, yes, ma'am, I will. Well, I eventually, in a day or so, I wrote it down. And for those of you watching the podcast, I'm holding in my hand that piece of paper that I wrote the song down with. At the top of it, it just has my name, copyright 1981. And it's just the, the melody and the chords that go along with this tune. It's in the key of C. It has, you know, the C, A minor, D minor ninth, D minor seventh, G7, and D minor seventh, G7, back to C, and so on. It's a very simple chord progression, very simple melody. So put that in the piano bench and didn't think much about it. We tried to think of a name for it. As you could tell, there was no name on the top of it. We couldn't come up with a good name. You know, when you're trying to, now, I guess it's, we've never had any children ourselves so i'm sure it's very similar to trying to find what name are you going to give your your child that's a pretty important decision you know yeah. well we couldn't come up with anything so a couple of years later some good friends of ours had a little baby girl named rachel and they asked me and linda to be her godparents and so at rachel's christening service it was a private service just us and the family and the minister and and at that service Linda and I were sitting there at the, in the church, and I looked up at the center of the platform in the front of the church. There was a grand piano sitting there. And so the light bulb went on. And <laughs> you, you know what's coming, don't you, Timmy? I punched Linda and I said, I said, hey, what if I played that song now as part of this service? Wouldn't that be great? And she said, well, yeah. So you better ask the family, though. So I went up and asked the minister and the family if it'd be okay if I played this tune as part of the service. They, of course, said yes, and so everybody sat back down, and I went over to the piano, sat down, and I started playing this song. And it sounded just absolutely beautiful, and it's just wonderful little old church where there's nobody in there but us and the family, so the echo, the reverb in the church was great, and it sounded wonderful. And I got halfway through the song, and I hear in the, in the back in the background, I hear this <clears throat> sniffles and a little <clears throat> clear in their throat, and... And I noticed that my eyes were getting a little uh, teary as well. So by the time I finished the song and the last notes of the song were dying away, I looked over at little Rachel in the arms of her mother. And I said, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's Song in her honor. And Timmy, that's how my first song got its name. And that song has literally changed the trajectory of my life. It, it, it literally has made my dreams, almost all my dreams come true. It's just that it's just an incredible progress and story from that point forward of what has happened to me and my wife and our, our and my music. It's just a wonderful thing. Mm. I love that. I love how you just let it come to you and you just let it happen. Like you first, it's not like you were beating your head against the wall, trying to write a song in the beginning. It just came to you one night and you didn't force a name on it. You just waited for the right moment. And then you played that song and there it was. This is now Rachel's song. And so I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm sure the audience is too. pick up the story and tell us kind of how that song carried you into the rest of your music career and um, just how it kind of emboldened your uh, life with your wife and 
what is Rachel's involvement in your life now? Like, does she really like the song? All that. Stuff. Give us the give us the whole the whole story. Well, you know, following the christening service, uh, that was uh, in 1983. Uh, I was still, of course, working with a Western Electric AT&T, the technology company. And my job took me, uh, I was traveling all over the country because we were implementing some new uh, manufacturing software in all of our factories. One of our factories was located in Nashville, Tennessee. So I was at that point in 1986, I was traveling to Nashville, um, go fly on Monday and come home on Friday. I was spending all week in Nashville. And Linda said, well, why don't you, while you're in Nashville, go find a studio and a musician. Let's get a demo recording made of Rachel's song, just something we could enjoy and we could give a copy to the Rachel and her family and they could enjoy. So well, that's a great idea. So one evening after work, I get in my rental car and I drive to downtown Nashville, Tennessee. And, and if you've been to Nashville, you know, it's, there's lots of everything music there. And there's one part of town across the river that's called Music Square or music. I think it's about a two or three square block area. That's everything in there is music, the Country Music Hall of Fame, the RCA recording studios, the old original one that you can tour and BMI headquarters, ASCAP headquarters. And, so I thought, wow, you know, surely I can find a studio here because they had over 200 studios in Nashville. So I'm driving down this one street called Roy Acuff Place. Now, Roy Acuff was a famous Nashville musician, much loved, and they even named a street after him. It's called Roy Acuff Place. So here I am driving down Roy Acuff Place. And at the end of the street on the right, there was a a big building had a kind of a barn shaped roof to it. And at the corner of the street, it had a big water wheel, you know, a, a, like you'd come from the music mill, like Mabry Mill up on the parkway, a, just a big old water wheel. And the, the sign on the side of the building said the music mill. I thought, well, that's really clever to have that music, <laughs> the mill, mill wheel out there. And, and so I pulled in the, in the park parking lot. And sure enough, there was, somebody that I could see sitting in the office through the glass door. And so I knocked on the door and he came and unlocked it and opened it. And he says, hi, I'm George Clinton. Can I help you? Now it's not the same George Clinton that just came to your mind probably, but there are lots of George Clintons around, but this was a recording engineer, a dearly beloved court recording engineer in Nashville, Tennessee. And so he introduced himself and I told him what I was looking for was a studio to record a demo of a little song I'd written. And I'd never been in a studio, didn't know what I was doing, but I was, needed some help. He said, well, come on in. So I walked into this lobby of this studio. It's about six o'clock or so at night. And on the, on the wall, it's a big two-story lobby. And on the, the, the left wall is this huge picture, life-size picture of Glenn Campbell. Mm -hmm. And then beside it was this big panorama picture of life-size of the, the recording group Alabama. And then there was the Forrester sisters and I don't know who all else. And then there was gold records and platinum records plastered on the walls all around this place. So, you know, <laughs> I knew I had landed in a, in a special place. And so George says, well, let me give you a tour of the place. There's nobody recording happens to be right now. And I'll give you a tour of the studio. I said, that'd be wonderful. So we go into studio a, which is the big studio. And the music room, you could put a symphony orchestra in there. In fact, I'm sure they probably had had symphony orchestras in there. Big nine foot concert grand piano over in the corner. And, you know, it just was looked fantastic. And he said, now let's go over into the control room, 
where all the magic happens. So he opens up this soundproof six inch thick door into the control room. And so we go, we walk into there and the first thing I see, and I'm sure you've seen these as well, is the console. And it was like, it had like 32 tracks of knobs and, and yep. uh, sliders and switches. And it, it was an impressive thing. I, it looked like something that you'd find in, in NASA when they were trying to launch a, a rocket or something. And they had tape recorders all around the room, digital and analog, and the big, uh, thick, soundproof glass window, picture window where he could, he could, the engineer could see into the room where the music, musicians were performing. Big monitor speakers where he could hear the sound really, really well. And I'm, I'm just in, in blown away by what I'm seeing. And I said, George, how much does a place like this cost? He says, well, it's $125 an hour plus engineer. Now, mind you, this was 1986. Yeah. And you roll the dollars yeah. back. The 1986, $125 an hour was a lot of money. And so I'm sure I looked like, well, that's just the end of my, this is not going to work for me. He said, but Dave, don't worry. He said, the fellow who owns this studio also owns a tiny little studio across the street in what used to be a little rent house that they've converted into a studio. And it's $15 an hour plus engineer. I said, I think I can handle that. So he, I said, all right, got the, got the studio lined up. Now I need a good musician to play the song that I've written. And I didn't know anything about Nashville, how Nashville works with session musicians or anything. I just said, I need a good piano player. And he thought for a second, he said, I know just the fellow for you. His name is Gary Prim, P-R-I-M. He said, I've known Gary since he was a little fella. And he said, he's a wonderful musician. Everybody loves Gary. He said, I'm sure he'll do, he'll do a great job for you. He said, let's go back to my desk and I'll look his phone number up for you. So he did and wrote the number on a piece of paper and gave it to me. Well, I was, I had what I needed. So I jumped in my rental car and I hightailed it back to my hotel near the airport. Now you, most people say, well, why didn't you call him on the cell phone? <clears throat> this is 1986. Cell phones had not been invented yet. The internet wasn't invented. Google hadn't been invented. So this is back in, you know, hardwired telephone days. So I get to my hotel room, call Gary's number, got his answering machine, left a message, and he called me back in about 30 minutes. And he said, uh, when I told him what I wanted, he said, I'll be happy to do that for you. He said, uh, just uh, send me a tape recording of you playing it and send me a lead sheet. And I said, okay, what's a lead sheet? I didn't even, I, I didn't know the lingo. You know, every, every industry has its own little acronyms and lingo. Well, I didn't know what a lead sheet was. And I said, well, what's a lead sheet, Gary? And he says, well, it's just the chords and the melody written down on a piece of paper. And I said, oh, well, I've got that. I just didn't know to call it a lead sheet. Yep. That's that original piece yep. of paper I wrote down. So when I got back home, I sent Gary the lead sheet and a tape recording of me playing it on the piano so he'd know what it sounded like. And two weeks later, we met on August the 22nd, 1986, at that tiny little studio in Nashville at 6 o'clock. Gary comes walking into the, the, the studio with a, a, a Yamaha DX7 synthesizer. The musicians in the world will remember that one. It's a kind of a classic uh, <laughs> analog synthesizer. It's a great synthesizer. And so he brings that with him into the studio. And so I'm there with Gary and the recording engineer and Gary starts playing 
warming up playing my, 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 my song that I'd written, Rachel's song. Now you gotta remember, this was the first time in my life that I'd ever heard my music played by somebody besides me. I'd, I'm the only one that had ever played Rachel's song before. So I had, I had no idea what to expect. You know, when you turn over a project to a creative person and you give them creative license to do whatever they do for that project, you don't really know what you're going to get. But I can tell you one thing, that if you uh, find people like Gary Prim in Nashville, Tennessee, what you get is probably going to exceed your expectations by a hundredfold. Yeah. Well, when he started playing my Rachel song and we started recording it on the piano and uh, I was just blown away by what I heard. It just, it was just, it was like I, my wife and I have no children, but I can imagine it was like being at the birth of your first child. It would just be that, you'd just be so awestruck and amazed at the creativity. And so when he finished playing the piano part, if, if he could have stopped right there and I'd have been happy. But he said, I got some more, I want to enhance this even a little bit more than what it is. I want to add some high strings and I want to add some low strings and I want to take the piano part and I want to double that with an electric piano sound. And then I want to probably put some horns in the middle and, and make it really a full uh, sounding recording. So he sits back down on the, the, the bench out there with his synthesizer and he's got his headphones just like you've got on there. And he puts that on so he can hear the piano part that he just previously recorded. And he plays the strings part. And then he plays the electric piano part nailed it. I mean, he played the exact same notes that he had played on the acoustic piano, on the electric piano, dead on. You cannot hear a difference in the sound. And it's not electronically, it's not electronically synced. It's synced in his own skill of playing. Yep. And I just couldn't yep. believe it. So when he finished with the whole recording, it only took him about 45 minutes. I'm just blown away. I mean, I had never heard any song on the radio in my mind that sounded any better than what I had just be begun hearing. And it's, it's, that was the, just a, a night. I remember driving back to the hotel after I, I paid Gary and he left and I went back to leave. I got on the interstate to head back to the hotel and I just kept, I, they made me a cassette tape of it. So I put it in my cassette player in the car and I played it and I'd rewind it and play it again, rewind it and play it again over and over and over and i remember distinctly what i've said in my mind was this is it i don't know whether you've had any or some of your listeners will have had experiences in their life that were such a a light bulb epiphany moment that you just you didn't know what it was but you said aha this is it and that's the way i felt i didn't know what it was but i knew this was it and it would be a forever changing the trajectory of the rest of my life and that's exactly what happened, because every time I played that recording, not just for me, but for anybody that I could corner long enough to listen to it, they were impressed. They were moved by this music, even total strangers moved by the music. I, I got back home to North Carolina, played it, of course, for my wife, because she had never heard it until I got back home, because we didn't have a way to play it over the phone. <clears throat> and... She just was blown away with it. I played it for a good friend of mine, Bob McHone, who happened to have a radio program on a local FM station in Greensboro. He had a big band kind of program. He was moved to tears with the, with the Rachel song that he listened to. He, Bob told me, he said, Dave, you gotta let me play this on my radio program. I said, okay, all I have is this master reel-to-reel -reel tape of it 
that's uh, high quality, take good care of it because it's only one of them in the whole world. <laughs> so, so he did it. They took it to the radio station, and that next Saturday morning on Bob's radio station, he played Rachel's song on the FM radio station. And I had no idea what was going to happen. I was, of course, thrilled to hear my own music played on the radio. But the next thing that happened that really put it in another high gear was the station radio station manager uh, called me on the phone and he said, Dave, a strange thing just happened at the radio station here. He said, I've been in radio for over 20 years and this has never happened to me before, ever. He said, when Bob played Rachel's song this morning on the radio, he said, all 15 of our phone lines at the radio station locked up. Just everybody was calling. What is the name of that song that you're playing? Would you play that again? What? Tell me more about this Combs guy in, Nor- in Winston-Salem. And he said, he said, Dave, you, you've got something here. He said, I've never seen this before, but you, you got to get this played on all the stations around the whole country. And and so I, I realized that that was true. And I started on a path of how do I do that? And I had to figure it out. It wasn't easy. A lot of phone calls, a lot of prospecting and and researching who who are the stations, where are they, what's their phone number. But I, got, I eventually got it played on all 400 and some easy listening stations in the entire United States uh, for that year. And I started getting phone calls and letters from people that heard it from Los Angeles. It was the number one hit the charts and the number one in the charts for easy listening in Los Angeles, Atlanta, uh, Chicago, St. Louis, Baltimore, all over the country. And I, I'd get these billboard kind of top 10 kind of reports and there'd be Rachel's song right up there. And it just blew me away that this song just kind of took on a life of its own. Now you talk about living the dream. You know, th- these are the kind of things that you, for a musician, that's what your dreams are made of. You, you, you just hope that someday you'll find some way to have a song that you've written or you've performed that will just strike a chord with millions of people and, and just have an unbelievable impact. And that's what happened. And I could not have scripted it any, any better if I'd have tried. And it's just a, a story that just, it was intended, it was meant to be, and I really believe that it was destined to be that way. Given the sequencing of events that had to happen for it to come to fruition, I would 1000% agree with you. <laughs> Like that is yeah, just because you phenomenal. stop thinking about today, you know, in today's world, uh, how do you get anything, like, or whether it's a book or a music or anything promoted and, and cut through all the noise of all the other competition? It is a huge mountain challenge to even, even think about that kind of thing. So for that to have actually happened almost not, it wasn't without me doing something about it. I had to take action to make it happen, but it, it just, it, it was obviously intended to happen and to, to come to fruition. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, uh, you pointed out that you had to take action for it to happen. Were there ever any doubts that ran through your head as you were prospecting to the radio stations? Yes. Well, not so much the radio station. Radio, radio stations, is because I was pitching it to easy listening. Back then, we used to have something called easy listening radio stations. Mm-hmm. Today, I don't think there, there may not be but one or two in the entire country. The formats have all changed to other uh, other genres of music. Back then, it was called easy listening. There was mostly soothing, relaxing, instrumental, piano, orchestra, guitar, you know, some instrumental, soothing kind of music. I guess today they would call it spa music or some other 
kind of meditation music, whatever. But I didn't have any difficulty getting them to accept it once I got it to them because the music almost sold itself. When, I, when they heard Rachel's song, every program director that heard it said, I'm putting this in my playlist. And it happened. Now, where it did, where I did run into a, a, a really a dis, uh, discouraging roadblock was I thought, well, who's going to buy my music? How am I going to sell the records of my music? And back then, we had cassette tapes and CDs were just beginning. And of course, vinyl records were still being sold and played as well, but it was mainly cassette tapes and CDs. And so I thought, and we used to have something called record stores. There was Record Bar, Tower Records, uh, I forget all the, the, and that's all they sold was music. Today, that's, it's hard to find any place that is just a music store that sells playable music. But back then we had music stores and I thought, wow, as much success as Rachel's song is having on the radio, surely these record stores will be just delighted to carry my, my recording of Rachel's song and sell it to their customers. Well, boy, was I in for a real education. These people were not interested in an unknown boy from North Carolina, East Tennessee hillbilly that wrote a song called Rachel's Song. You know, I, I wasn't out on the tour, tour trail of promoting my music and yeah. you know, spending millions yeah. of dollars promoting my music. So they were not interested. And that, to me, was the most frustrating and uh, eye-opening, I guess, uh, situation for me. I was so naive that I thought that it would just automatically take off and it would, the music would sell itself. Well, that was not the case at all. But I didn't give up because I knew from the feedback I was getting from the fans from the radio airplay, and I started getting letters and notes in the mail. And these were heartfelt, deep, you know, many page letters telling me what my music had meant to them and how it had helped their life and um, some really, uh, you better get your Kleenex, box of Kleenex out when you read some of those letters. It was very touching. So I knew that God must have had a purpose for this song because there's no way in the world that it, this music could have touched those people's lives the way it did without his uh, intending for that to happen. And I, so I knew there's got to be a way. So I did not give up. I said, I'm just going to find another way. And this is the, I think, in my heart, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. Mm. I always want to create something and to make it happen myself. I don't want to be dependent upon everybody else to, to make something happen with my life. I loved working with big corporation, AT&T and all that, but that was always just my occupation that I guess I was expected to have when I graduated from college. But I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and do something for myself with my own creativity. And so I, I decided that, well, the stores won't do it for me. Uh, there's got to be another way. And I had kept, I kept trying, you know, with other, uh, we kept thinking, how can you expose the music to people so they can hear it and buy it? You know, there's lots of places that music is played, you know, grocery stores and the elevators and everywhere the music's played. And this, the, the solution came not from my own creativity or my thinking, but it was through a coworker of mine at AT&T, a lady that sat in an office right beside mine. She said, Dave, would you give me a CD of Rachel's song to give to a friend of mine who owns a gift shop in Old Town Alexandria? I was working in Bethesda, Maryland at the time, 
And as you probably know, Bethesda, the uh, Old Town Alexandria is a very popular tourist town across the river from Washington, D.C. And so she said, my friend Jane owns this store called America. And it's a she sells everything patriotic. If it's red, white, and blue, she sells it. And she plays music on her CD system in her store. She plays John Philip Sousa music, you know, all kinds of patriotic music. She said, I th I'm going to give her a copy of Rachel. She would love Rachel's song. I said, okay. So I gave her a CD of Rachel's song and didn't think much about it. A couple of days later, my phone rings at work, and the lady on the other end says, hi, this is Jane. I'm the one that owns America Gift Shop, and uh, I've been playing your music, Rachel's song, in my store, and she said, I've got a big problem. She said, every time that song plays on my CD system in the store, all my customers come over to the counter and say, have you got that music for sale? I'd love to take that home with me. And she said, would you sell me some CDs of Rachel's song to sell in the store? And I thought that didn't take me about a millisecond to say yes. But this was, I'd never, I didn't even know how, what the proper wholesale price should be. You know, I know that CDs sell for around $14, $15. And I didn't know well, what should I sell them to the store for. I didn't. I hadn't even crossed that bridge yet. So she helped me. We worked through that, and reached an agreement on the wholesale price. And she said, "Can you bring me some tonight?" And I said, "Yes, ma'am. Linda and I will be down to Old Town tonight with a box of music for you." So that we got home after work, boxed up some cassette tapes and CDs of Rachel's song. Down to Old Town Alexandria, we went and took Jane her first box of CDs and tapes of Rachel's song. And we had no idea what was going to happen because this, this is the first time it ever been done with me. And so a couple of days later, the phone rings again. And you know what happened, Timmy? She says, she called, she said, Dave, I need some more. Those are gone. I didn't order enough. You didn't bring me enough. I said, okay, all right. So let's double the order, all right? And so we hopped in the car, took her twice as many that night. And you know, Linda and I made that trip to Old Town Alexandria every week for over a year. And Jane sold over a thousand CDs and tapes of Rachel's song out of that one little gift shop in that one year's time. That's and now amazing. That, That's amazing. That is amazing. Now, I have my MBA from Wake Forest University, so I'm a business trained person. I love spreadsheets and I love data and I, I can crunch his numbers with the best of them. And so what I did was I looked and saw what was happening with her gift shop. And I said to myself, I wonder what would happen if if we replicated that business model, basically, because I had created a spreadsheet that said, all right, here's how many I sold her. Here's how much she paid me for me, how much it cost me. Here's the difference. That's my gross profit. And that's how much it was. And I said, OK, what if? I could replicate that uh, experience in just one gift shop in every 50, all 50 states. Let's just say I had 50 gift shops like that. What would it look like? Well, you can do that instantly in a spreadsheet. Just make another column and take column two is uh, 50 times column one. Well, you look at the bottom line number and say, oh, well, now that's an interesting number. You may have done this yourself with some of your entrepreneurial business models. You, you kind of see. You get it working on a small scale and then say, wow, well now, what if we re replicate this? And I said, well, that, that was a good number. What if I had only five gift shops in all 50 states? That's 250 gift shops around the whole country. It's a big country. I know there's thousands of gift shops. 
So 50 times, I mean 250 times column one is column three. And I, the bottom line gross profit number, or net profit number was a big number. I said, Linda, come here and look at this number. This number at this spreadsheet, that's many times what I'm making at AT&T. I mean, it dwarfs what I'm making at AT&T. And see, we looked at each other and we both said, well, I guess we know what we got to do. Uh, <laughs> we got to duplicate this store. And so that's exactly what we, we set out to do. We went, we, we did what they, you call shoe leather marketing. That's when you're out walking the streets. We would go to a, <laughs> we would go out and tour, uh, go to a tourist town like Gatlinburg, Tennessee, or Blowing Rock, North Carolina, or Occoquan, Virginia, or Newmarket, uh, Maryland, places like that. And we would go on a Saturday because both of us still working. So we had to do this in the evenings and on weekends. But we would go and we would, she'd go down one side of the street and I'd go down the other and all these gift shops and I'd pop my head in a store and I'd listen. Do I hear music playing? If I heard pretty music playing, I'd go on in and, and introduce myself to the store manager and say, hey, I like the store and music and whatever. It's a, do you sell the music you play in here? Most of them said, no, but uh, we'd like to play it. And I said, well, do your customers ever ask you if you, if you have that music for sale? Well, now that you mentioned it, yeah, they, they do. I said, well, why don't you think about selling some of the music you play in your store? In fact, I said, I'm a, I've just got one album called Rachel's Song. Let me leave you a copy. You can play it for free. And, and if they ask you about it, let, give me a call and we'll, we'll work out something where I can sell you some and you can sell and make some money from it. Okay, so I did that every Saturday and Sunday for weekend after weekend after weekend, prospecting for, for gift shops. And most of the time, when they played it in their store, same thing happened to James, Jane's store, customers wanted to buy it. And I'd get a, an answering machine and more message, and it would say, so-and-so, I want to send me some music. We're going to get this going. So I grew my business from that one little gift shop in Old Town Alexandria pretty quickly to 20, 30 gift shops around the places that I could drive to. And then after a while, you run out of territory that you can physically get there in, you know, in a weekend's time. You know, your, your radius of what you can cover is, I couldn't do California or in the middle of the country. I'm, I was only limited to you know, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, that kind of thing. Yep. So yep. Linda says, okay, why don't you try prospecting with the telephone? You know, you work for the telephone company, AT&T. Let's uh, start calling these gift shops and in and, and these places and see what kind of res response you get. So I said, well, okay, I need the, the phone numbers of all the gift shops. Now, this is before, before Google, before the Internet. Back then, it was phone books, physical paper phone books. Now, we were living in Maryland, close to Washington, D.C., and the yellow pages in the back of phone books at a listing for gift shops. You could go to the category of gift shops and it would list A to Z, all the gift shops in that town. And it, to get those listings, the Library of Congress has a room, or did have, they probably don't now, but they had a room, a big room, that had every phone book in the entire United States on shelves, by alphabetical, by state. You could literally find a phone book for any town in the United States. So I went, I would go down to the Library of Congress, find the towns that I wanted to call, pull the, get the phone book and make Xerox copies of the gift shop pages 
and take that back home. And then I'd have a list then I could start calling on weekends. And I'd call and I'd call. And I had to make 30 phone calls to get one yes. Now, this is another principle of, that entrepreneurs will appreciate is sometimes you have to get used to hearing somebody re say no. But you don't stop. You say, all right, I've, I've made 29 calls. I'm, maybe the next one's going to be a yes. So I would make 30 phone calls to get one yes. I made so many phone calls that my phone bill came in the a box the size of a shoe box. I mean, literally, the, the little page printouts, was it was a, a box full of pages of printout because most phone calls were 13 seconds long because here's what I said. Hello, do you sell any tapes of the music that you play in your shop? And wait for an answer. And they'd say, oh, we don't play music. Okay, well, thank you very much. Goodbye. Uh, no, we don't play sell music, but we do play it. Then I would launch into a, well, do your customers ever ask about, you know, that pitch to see if they would be interested. Some of them would say, well, I, I, nah, we're not interested. Goodbye. But every once in a while, about one out of 30, I'd get one that said, well, yeah, yeah, we, we'd like to do that. So I'd send them, get their address and phone number and, and promise to give them a free tape or CD or whichever they wanted. And, and we'd start off. And almost all of those prospects that we started with would end up being customers. Well, you're going to appreciate this. After a while, one out of 30 is not a great hit rate. It is not very efficient use of your time. So I had learned enough from all those phone calls that the places that I had the best success were, were tourist towns. When I would call Atlanta, Georgia, or New York City, or Baltimore, Maryland, and all these big towns, I wouldn't get anywhere, almost nobody. Because the quality and the character of those gift shops in a big city is totally different than these quaint little gift shops out in the middle of boondocks in like, you know, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, or Occoquan, Virginia, or wherever it was. Totally different. And so uh, I said, well, now, if I'm having great success in the tourist towns, why don't I just concentrate on just them? All right, I got to find out where are the tourist towns in the United States? Well, I thought, well, surely the Better Business Bureaus, Chamber of Commerce, those people, they'll, they'll know that if I call the Chamber of Commerce of the state of Maryland, they can give me a list of all the tourist towns in the state of Maryland. So I'd call the place up and tourist town. No, we don't have a list like that. I don't know if anybody does. Nobody had a list. I even called the, the, the Department of Commerce in Washington, D.C. Nobody there had that list. So I, that was another one of those things where I was kind of hit a, hit a roadblock, but I didn't stop. I said, I know there's got to be a way to solve this. So I thought to myself, and I'm a data analyst myself. I'm very analytical. Uh, now that we call it data analytics these days in time, but that, didn't, that term wasn't even in existence back then. But I, I said, there's got to be a way with the data that's available to, to locate tourist towns in every state. And so I said, what are the two characteristics of a tourist town? Number one is the tons of gift shops. I mean, you walk into a tiny little town and both sides of the street are one gift shop right after another, after another, after another. And number two is what is the permanent population, census population of that little town? Well, not very many. Well, the point is that 
A tourist town is defined by the fact that its businesses are supported by a population that does not live there, and <laughs> they're called tourists. They come from outside of town. So I said, okay. I, I, I said, I need the number of gift shops in every little town. So I did find out I could purchase the printout, a, a hard paper copy printout of all of the gift shops in the United States, 75,000 of them. So this printout was like four inches thick, big eight, you know, 15 inch wide computer printout paper. And it had every gift shop listed from A to Z in every town in every state in alphabetical order. And I bought that for, I could get it, I think it was about $250. It was not cheap. This was back in, I think about 1988 or nine timeframe, not cheap. But I had then the entire country's gift shops in my one printout. Was their now, contact was information of, also on it? Oh yeah, it was their the gift shop name, their address, the uh, owner's name, telephone number, address, everything. So it was perfect for that. wasn't you know it wasn't digitized. I couldn't just call it up on a screen, but I could yeah. flip to it on a piece of paper. So now I said I need to know for that little town wherever it is. Let's say it's a town in Arkansas. I'd never even been there. I, it didn't, wouldn't matter whether I'd been there or not. How many people live in that town? So I knew, of course, the, the Census Bureau does that data collection every 10 years. So I knew that data had to be somewhere. And sure enough, it was. But it wasn't where I thought it was going to be. I was, uh, if you ever want to know something around data or in doing research, the best person in the world to talk to is a librarian. You may have some experience in your life, too, with librarians are wonderful, wonderful people. They, if they don't know the answer, They'll find out a way to get the answer and they won't give up. They are wonderful researchers. Well, the public library where I worked in Bethesda, Maryland was literally across the street from my office. So at lunchtime one day, I go over to the library and I asked the library and I said, I told her what I needed. I said, I need to know a place where I can find the population of every little place in the United States. And she says, well, are you ever in luck? She said, come over here. And so she took me over, took me over to a table and on this table, and this is the book, I ended up buying a book, a copy of it. It's called the Rand McNally, this 1990 Commercial Atlas and Marketing Guide. Inside this big thick book, it weighs about 12 pounds, but inside this book is our maps of every state. I mean, it's got detailed maps in, of every state, but the most important thing is back here in the back, it has for the state of Oregon, for example, a to Z, every little crossroad town in the state of Oregon, and guess what? Their population. Mm. So I, I said, well, I can't come to the library and do this every day. So I found out I could buy a copy of that, and it was about, I think, $125 to buy that book. So I got me a copy. Now, it took me forever to go through that printout of 75,000 gift shops and count. Every town, I would count one, two, three, till I got to the how many? And I made me a spreadsheet of the town, how many gift shops were in it. And then I'd go into my book and look up the population of that town and put that in the spreadsheet. And the beautiful thing about Excel spreadsheets is that you can have it calculate something. So I made another data point that says, what's the ratio of population per gift shop for this town? And then that's a number. Now I want you to sort my entire spreadsheet by that ratio. I want the smallest number at the top. 
within every state. And I'm telling you, it was absolutely a gold mine. Every state, the, the, the tourist towns just rose to the top of the list. There in Tennessee, Gatlinburg was number one. North Carolina, Blowing Rock was number one. Virginia, Occoquan, those places, right up at the top. So that, and I, so that validated. But every state, that, even though I had never been there, I knew now if I call that town first and make my pitch, I'm going to have a great success. My hit rate when I started making my phone calls went from one in 30 to one in four or five. And it was no. just dramatic. I mean, can you imagine now? <laughs> I, I, I see the excitement on your face. I was, I was that excited. I could not wait to get on the phone and make these. I had made so many prospects that successful that I would almost have to make two trips to the post office on Monday with these prospect packages. My car back seat wouldn't hold all the packages. I'd have to make two trips to drop off the packages of the prospecting to these gift shop prospects. I went from just a handful of gift shops and, and it took me like about a year or so, but I had over a thousand gift shops over the entire country that were playing and selling my music. And that's what, that's what really turned the corner for me. And by 1992, I had, I was doing so well that I was making three times what I was at work at home. So I told my boss, I've, I've just got to quit because I can't afford to work here anymore. So, um, <laughs> so it was, it was unbelievable, but you know, it, 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 it sounds like it's so simple and it sounds, and as I tell the story now, it kind of goes by real quick, but believe me, that was a ton of work. Let me tell you, hours and hours spending at it, grinding at it, but it, it paid off. You, you just keep taking action. You do not quit. You take, don't take no for an answer. Just keep on keeping on. I love it. I love it. And since Rachel's song, you put out many more albums, 120 songs, 14 albums. Is that right? Right. There's 14 albums. Then I made a 15th album, which is a kind of a collection album. I took one song from each of the 14 albums and put that on one album called the Combs Collection. But uh, yeah, I've got, I've written over 120 songs. Gary Prim and I have recorded over 170 songs in Nashville. And it, I have heard notes and letters, uh, physical notes and letters from over 50,000 people over the years. And, and toward the end of it, it was a lot of it was emails and, and phone calls and notes electronically. But uh, the, that was the impetus for my writing my book was I had those stories that my fans were telling me about how my music touched their lives was so uh, compelling that I said, I've got to, I've got to write these stories down for somebody that maybe will read my story in my book and be inspired to do something similar with whatever that God's get, has gifted them to be able to do. 120%. I love it. And so in all those letters, did they tell you what about the song or what in the song touched them so that just is so unique to me to hear that about a song like i'm, I'm about to go listen to it right after this podcast <laughs> yeah well uh that's the strange part about it is that i have i've struggled with what is it it is so special and unique about this one simple and it is very simple when you hear the and we're going to tell everybody how they can go hear it after the uh, after the podcast it is so simple but yet it is so uh touching it, it reaches so in such a depth of your heart and soul 
that it's hard to explain. I could, people would write to me and tell me how they felt about it, how it made them feel. It, it was, I had alcoholics that would write and tell me that my music had helped them maintain their sobriety. It, I had a, a person on an iron lung, believe it or not, had scribbled out a note on a postcard, and he said that my music in an iron, this is back when polio, they put them literally in an iron lung so they could breathe. He said, your music brought me back to life twice. Mm. Now, that don't give chills up your spine, nothing will. It is. It was just like, wow, and how is this possible? And I had people that had their, their children were babies born to the music. I had elderly folks that were the last thing they heard before they went on to heaven was my music. And I had uh, musicians that were that could not play or do anything anymore. But on their hospital bed, the nurses would say they'd hear my music and they could see their fingers playing my music on the bed sheet. And, you know, it's those kind of stories that just just grab you. I mean, yeah, it's just amazing. And I don't have the answer to that question. It's a great question, but I would give anything to know the real answer to it. And I probably won't ever know till I get to heaven and, and find out. But it's just uh, amazing how music can touch people's lives and different and everybody's different. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, awesome, Dave. That was an excellent story. Where can we all go listen to the song? Well, now I've made it very simple and it's also it's free. You can go to my website, which is combsmusic.com. And on the left side of the page will be a picture of my book. And on the right side of the page is a picture of the cover of my CD, Rachel Song. But in the middle, about where my face is, there's a tab that says play Rachel's song. And if you click on that, it will either play it immediately or you can actually download the MP3 and play it later. But you will be listening to the original demo recording that I told you about a minute ago in 1986 that was recorded with Gary Prim has not been altered, has not been remastered. It is that original recording. And when you listen to it, you can tell where Gary starts playing the, the electric key, keyboard part with the real piano and where the strings kick in and where the horns come in. And, and it, I, in my book, I go in great detail. I try to take you with me into the studio in my book. When I tell you the story in my book, I want you to be there in the studio with me. Mm. So that, and I'd, it'd, be, it'd be great if you're listening to Rachel's song while you're even reading it. But it's, it's just a wonderful immersion into the creation of a beautiful song. Now, for those that don't go to a website, there's a lot of people that listen to podcasts on nothing but audio, whether it's you know streaming on different platforms. But whatever platform you use to listen to music, whether it's Spotify or Pandora or Apple Music or any of those platforms, if you will tell your system to play Rachel's song, by Gary Prim. Now, Gary Prim is the artist, so they, they always catalog songs by the artist, not the composer. But just tell us, play Rachel's song by Gary Prim, and you'll be listening to my version of Rachel's song. And so it's very, very simple. It's played millions of times around the world, and it has been. And I love hearing from people. And even today, I will get stories from people where they tell me how the music has really touched their lives. And today's frenetic world and how much we're so stressed, we all need something that brings that level of stress down in our lives. And I'm just grateful that Rachel's song seems to do that for millions of people. 120%. 
Well, Dave, I think that's a great place to end the show, actually. <laughs> well, I, I'm so honored that uh, we, you and I finally were able to be, make this happen after some power outages at your place and reschedules, <laughs> but we did make it happen. And thank you again for inviting me. It's, uh, I told my wife, Linda, when I saw some of your other podcasts, I said, I, I'm going to have a blast talking to this guy tonight because he just looks like somebody I love to talk to. So we have had a, had a good time and, uh, I hope your audience that listens to it enjoyed it too. And I hope they will give you some really great feedback. Yeah, absolutely. I think for, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it was like a, um, what is it called? Like entrepreneurship 101, 201, 301 and master's degree <laughs> in the story of life and entrepreneurship and just such a beautiful, I also love how it's so impact focused. Like a lot of people might get into entrepreneurship just because they want money. They want to escape their job. But I love how you let it happen. And in letting it happen, something so beautiful was born. So I admire that patience in you for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. And if you guys are listening to this and you loved what Dave had to say, make sure to go to his website. It will be down in the show notes. Listen to Rachel's song, buy the book, send this podcast, send his book, send Rachel's song to five to 10 of your closest friends, impact their lives too. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We will see you on the next one. And on that note, we're out. Guys, thanks for listening. Make sure to reach out to our guests and help them accomplish their dreams and goals if you resonated with them. If you're looking for any intentional masterminds or one-on-one -on -one coaching to accomplish your dreams and goals, make sure to check out the website, workwithtimmydouglas.com, and contact me either there or on social media. That's all I got. Have a blessed day.